Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Catholic imagination, which admittedly is something that I thought was very abstract at first. But through the conversation that I had with Dennis and Chris, I was able to really understand it in more detail. So we talk a little philosophy. We talk a little JP2 letter to artists. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, episode 23 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. To talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day to day life, our, our day to day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Well, that, yeah, I know we were just talking about John Lennon's Imagine. What's the line? Imagine all the people. Imagine there's, there's no, heaven. no heaven. It's easy yeah. if you try. That's not no easy. It's not easy for me. Yeah, but you do have to try. Well, you, I mean, you have to make an effort to. Wait, what, what, is the, what are the actual lyrics, Chris? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You don't have to imagine that, do you? No. <laughs> I well, don't. That's right. Well, you don't have to imagine it because that's how people were living. And I mean, who wants to live in the sky? I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. He's a genius. So we're just supposed to, he, everything he says is accurate. Well, he okay? could write a handy tune, but he wasn't quite a theologian, I don't think, at the, the high level we would All right. So, what is, what is the, what does the Catholic Church tell us about imagination? And this is something that I did not even know existed, but you guys were just talking about it. Well, Chris just came back from a conference at Notre Dame. Called the Catholic Imagination. Right? Yeah, there, wait, there's a whole conference just on Catholic Imagination. There are several books with that really? title, the Catholic Imagination. Yeah, in some ways, it's, I mean, it's it's about what image should the Church portray of herself? How do people portray? How, how do they receive the Church? What image does the faith have in the world today? Uh, what image would the Church want people to have of the faith? You know, so it's all about images, image imagery, signs, symbols, expressions. Um, and this is a very key concept for the Catholic faith, uh, and especially the liturgy as well. Right. Everything, we, everything talking, we talked about, every podcast exactly has been, say. imagine heaven, or angels show us what heaven, ambos tell us what the word of Christ proclaimed in the world might look like. It's always asking us to imagine something that is not actually present in front of us. And that's a capacity of the soul that we have. You know, there are these scholastic or Thomistic definitions, they're very precise terminology, but Basically, um, it's the capacity we have of knowing in our mind things independent of ever seeing them. So I say, imagine what an angel is like. You know, most of us have not had angels show up in our bedroom at night and say, this is what an angel looks like. Or what, what does heaven look like? What might the restored world look like? What would the world transformed by divine life be like? We've never encountered those, and yet we can kind of imagine what it might be like because we've had other sense impressions. Or, Im- what's You said imagine? Yeah. Put into an image what it might be oh, yeah. like. Imaginate, right? Imagine, oh, wow. imagize. Yeah. Uh, so so is this this hold true for like things that are revealed to us by God. So I mean, we talk we talk a lot about liturgy reflecting um, the Book of Revelations in in the in the Bible. Um, those things were revealed to him by God. So is that his imagination, or is that just something that doesn't count because it was given to him? Well, it counts. It always but, counts. What do you say? We. we the the liturgy reflects the, the book of Revelation. Yeah, it puts into images 
the images, how to read the images of the liturgy, the, the code for those are the book of Revelation. Those are its reflections. The liturgy is, is, a, is a large reflection of the book of Revelation. Right. So I proclaim to you chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, and it's describing the jeweled walls of heaven. Right. Listen, we're Catholics. We don't do that well, type that's of stuff. One, that's one that I know. Oh, okay. It's yeah. a great architectural image. <laughs> I say, oh, the walls, uh, the streets of heaven are gold, clear as crystal. The walls are made of gems. There's a garden inside. Well, you've never seen this, and yet you're forming a little image in your head because you've heard something in your ears, some kind of visual uh, audio description of what it might be like, and then you're forming an image of your, in your head of something you've never seen. And this is a capacity we have, uh, particularly through the liturgy, to become accustomed to be ready for heaven. We do all of this imagining of what heaven might be like in all the eschatological things in the liturgy. And the eschaton, or eschatological means the end times, so the world restored to the glory that it's supposed to have. And this is a really important Vatican II concept. It's all in Vatican II. What were you saying for, before, Chris, about Vatican II and its eschatological emphasis? Oh, yeah, there's, a, there's an article by, I think, Aidan Nichols, uh, it, was, it was called A Tale of Two Documents. And the two documents he was discussing was uh, Pius XII's uh, Mediator Day, 1947, mm-hmm. and the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy from 1963. And he's comparing and contrasting. What is, what is the first one? What is that one about? I've never heard that. Uh, it's the first encyclical on the Sacred Liturgy, Mediator Day, okay. Pi- Pope Pius XII in 1947, entirely devoted to uh, the sacred liturgy, and in many ways, if you were to look at the the, the footnotes to Sacrosanctum Concilium, the majority, I think, we can safely say, Dennis would be to Mediatra Day. I mean, they're they're uh, they're very much in the same line of these 20th century uh, ecclesial um, documents. But A. Nichols is comparing and contrasting these two documents, and one of the points of divergence that he sees between them is that uh, he says that uh, Mediatra Day is a uh, this isn't the right way to say it, a backward-looking document. What he means is it's, 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 there's more of an emphasis on the historical, on the anamnesis, on the remembering of the action of Christ. Uh, now, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy doesn't deny any of that, but its emphasis is a little bit more forward-looking, yeah, more eschatological, more, uh, more heavenly. And so it has a greater emphasis on the heavenly dimension of the liturgy. So it uses phrases like, in the earthly liturgy, we have a foretaste of that liturgy celebrated in the heavenly Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. you can say, we remember what Jesus did, and we bring it back and make it real in our own life in an anamnetic way, meaning it's not just remembering, but it's remembering that makes real and active the thing that is remembered. So that's the back, the past coming forward. Or you can say, we're going to reach into the heavenly future and pull that back into our own time. And liturgy does that. It reaches into the past and brings it forward, yes. And it reaches into the future and brings it back. So not only do we get the past made real, but we get the future made real all at the same time right there on the altar. And so... Through, but through images. Through images, and they can be images that are visual to the eye. They can be images for the ear. They can be images even for the sense of touch. You know, you rub, you rub your hand across the beautiful, cool, smooth mensa slab, top slab of an altar, and you say, wow, this is a beautiful, polished, delightful thing. Yeah, but when we say imaginary, we have to make sure, you know, we know this, right? That when we say it, it's not fantasy. Right. It's not I Puff mean, the Mag- Magic Dragon. Right. right. The, the past right. and you the future. You see God with the, the white flowing locks and the beard. and. But see, uh, even that we can imagine because Christ taught us that God was the Father. So we assume he's older than Jesus. And so we show him with the white beard. But that's he's it. also the same age as Jesus. Well, yeah, they're, they're both eternal, so they're, they're both they're ageless. Yeah, I guess re- that's true. The ah, reason, you got me. The reason we can form an image of the Father is because we've 
had some kind of sense experience that then entered into what we could imagine. We can't really know God, but we come to form certain ideas based on what we've actually learned. And so the imagination is a very important capacity that we have to take kind of basic dull facts and say, oh, wow, now I know what God is. Now I know what heaven might be like. Now I know what my own heavenly future might be like, and I want that. Yeah. This is not simply, though, uh, a theological uh, uh, reality imagination. You, you recall from your philosophy studies, I think, I'm trying to. Plato and Aristotle themselves were talking about how is it that you come to know things? And so this would be epistemology class, how you come to know. And someone like Plato would say that you had all these realities in your mind at one time and then through some uh, catastrophe you were plonked down into this uh, body and you forgot everything. You forgot all of these images. Well, so, that doesn't sound true, but <laughs> keep going. Well, that's Sorry. some kind of pre-Christian understanding of the fall. You know, Adam and Eve had a lot of knowledge and then they fell and they kind of forgot most of it and mm -hmm. some things were left. And so what, what you're trying to do is recover these images that this uh, uh, this shadowy, cloudy world, you might remember this image of the, of the cave from Plato's Republic is mm -hmm. you think you're looking at reality but in fact you're just looking at copies and shadows and the idea is to escape this and get back to the true images but this was his question how is it that you come to real things through images aristotle for his part uh, was a little bit different and you know, he says we're born into this world as a, as a tabula rasa a blank slate upon which nothing is written so unlike plato where you come into the world and you know all this stuff but you forgot it for aristotle you're born uh knowing nothing how do you come to know things though? Sense experience. Sense experience, which brings images into your mind and from which you can, uh, uh, what would be the word, abstract more universal terms. But it's all about the imagery. But the point is, this is not just a theological thing or a liturgical thing or a Catholic thing. This is a very human thing. It's the place of images in coming to know reality around you. And so, whether you in your human life, in your superhuman life, the place of the image of the imagination is central. I'm so excited for my superhuman life. Well, you got to do something to look forward to. <laughs> I mean, think of the best moments you've ever had, kind of really imagining, wow, what could life be like, or what could the world be like if it's restored? That's what it's going to be like forever. And you can imagine that because it's a capacity of the soul. God gave us this capacity, and the the those images in the imagination pass into the intellect. So. You say, oh, I, I'm going to imagine what angels look like. Well, I've never seen one, but after you see enough images, whether they're icons or statues or whatever, then it kind of passes into the intellect. This imaginary thing then becomes a thing that you know. And then eventually you collect this set of intellectual ideas that form this full tapestry of the heavenly realities. And this is part of the process of sanctification. You know more about God in the level of the will and the intellect. And, uh, you know, people say that, an image inclines to action. So you have an experience of something and it makes you want to, to do something. Mm -hmm. And so you see beautiful things in a church. You say, I want to, I want to go in there. I, I'm driving by this church and there's this beautiful tower. I've seen this image of something beautiful. I want to go do that and experience that and know that. Well, all right. I have two questions here. Um, the first one is how do you know whether an image is authentic or not, meaning that it is actually something that has been revealed to you that is capital T true. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, are images or is is one's imagination inherently good, or can there be you know a false imagining uh, that would maybe lead you astray? I think those questions are related. Here's how I would approach it. You asked, how do we know that these images are authentic? And the word authentic is related to the word author. Mm -hmm. And the author of the images is God himself. Right. 
So we would know that they are true or accurate or reveal. Uh, we would know that they're the truth of the images that we have insofar as they are consonant and approaching the author's true images that he uh, gives to us. And that's what we talked a lot about sacramental signs and symbols and Right. The, the origin of, the, of the, the author of the liturgy's sacramental signs and symbols is Jesus, mm-hmm. the image of the invisible Father. Okay? And so the, the, the liturgy's images uh, echo, uh, mirror, uh, they symbolize, they're trying to get us to uh, encounter this image of God. And in fact, insofar as, what does St. Thomas say that... Uh, um, truth is it's it's an equation of the mind and the thing right so if i'm looking at uh, this uh, blue water bottle over here and i think it's uh, a red uh, giraffe well the image i have in my head is not matching the reality but insofar as this image in my head does uh, reflect that reality it's said to be true it's said to be true so our own uh, you know liturgical images are trying to approach the divine image of uh, uh, who, who is ultimately Christ and so we want to conform ourselves to these images and in fact even in I think this is one of the letters of uh, St. John where he talks about being in heaven in seeing Jesus face to face we shall become like him because we shall see him as he is and so this idea of you and Jesus uh, coming together in a single image not only impels you to go out and act, it, it, it's transformative to you, the thinker. Right. So uh, not everything imagined is necessarily right or true or good. Well, yeah, you that's can the second part. Yeah. Hallucinations. Um, you, know, you can voluntarily think, oh, I remember my childhood uh, dog, and so the dog's dead a long time ago. You can kind of will that. Some other images just arise spontaneously, like in dreams or you know, some kind of uh, fatigue-induced hallucination. And you might not say, oh, those are, those are accurate. But what happens in life is if you see enough things that conform to the mind of God, you kind of develop these intellectual habits. So going to Mass a lot isn't just this pious thing you do. It's a thing that forms you to know, understand, hear, see how the pattern of God works. So that if you do get an involuntary image, you can say, oh, that's obviously not conformed to God. And so when the liturgy is represented in its fullest and richest way, that gives you the most information from which your imagination can form the proper ideas, and hopefully those will become habitual and normative, and you'll know, oh, that's this is what heaven might be like. Now, I, I want to get into the, to that informed thing because we, we we have conversations very separately, you know, outside of the podcast at work, and about how a lot of times pers- people's or one's um, interpretation of you know a liturgy that is poorly done or they you know uh they they think it's wrong is because it's an opinion it's because what they what they think but you know what we do partly what we do at the liturgical institute is we help educate people of what what is actually there um so how can somebody um you know they they imagine the best liturgy is one way where we can read the documents of the church and we could say actually that's that's not that's not actually correct so how does one inform their imagination, or is it the other way around? Well, the imagination as, as images will be formed based on sense experience. And then the intellect has to come in and say, hmm, is that image that's formed in my mind adequate? Does it conform, just like Chris was saying, does what I understand conform to what my mind tells me it ought to be? And then you start to assess. But you know, the point of unity for all liturgical things are the, the rights of the church and the instructions that the church gives. So you can first start out there and say, does the church ask for this, require this, suggest this? And that's a first way to understand and evaluate. And then you can say, well, is, is, you know, 
this composer better than that composer, then that might be personal preference. They might be equal in terms of their theological dignity. But uh, the fundamental question is, what do I know about the liturgy? And is this living up to that uh, fundamental objective reality? There's a term that the church uses a lot. Uh, this is probably a subject for another podcast called Ars Celebrandi. Everything is an... Oh, I've actually a, been waiting to talk about this. But is uh, art or technique or skill. Uh, the church talks about Ars Celebrandi. In preaching, she calls Ars Predicande. Uh, everything is about this, this great work of art. And what the church does in celebrating her liturgy and giving norms and directives and prescriptions about how to celebrate it is she wants in this liturgical celebration the radiant face of Christ, the image of Christ, to be present, uh, present before us. Uh, and so as Dennis is saying, the, the church at least gives us the, the basics for how to present this image of Christ to the world. And yeah, you know, a hundred people go to a liturgy. At the end, there's probably a hundred different opinions about... Yeah, that's what I can't wrap my mind around. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's okay. I mean, you you would cease to be a thinking, living person if you if you no longer had an opinion anymore. Right. But I think the idea is, whether it's the liturgy or the church's uh, moral code or her creed, it's uh, coming to uh, understand and appreciate and digest and ingest and conform ourselves to those things, uh, ultimately to God. This is what sanctification is, is becoming like Jesus Christ, the image of whom is present in the scriptures, uh, in the church, in the poor, in the liturgy. Um, this is uh, this is life's project, has become me becoming less like me, I'm, well, and more like Christ. I don't cease becoming myself, but I've reached that full uh, joy and happiness and potential by conforming my image to the image of Jesus. And there's probably an element of, I'll know it when I see it, kind of in, in this whole thing of, you you know what, what a, a good imagined idea, concept, you know, icon, liturgy, you know, is, is, but then because truth has been revealed to us and, you know, it's all pointed towards Christ. But images are received according to the potential for the receiver to receive them. So you take a eight-year-old through the Louvre in Paris, and they're, Mom, this is boring. I don't, don't want to look at another masterpiece you know, mm-hmm. because they're not, they don't have the capacity to, to receive it properly. And so there are people out there who say, oh, that, I don't like that, even when it's the normative thing that the church asks for because they're not ready to receive it. And then there are other people who say, oh, well, you know, I want more than the church asks because the church is not good enough, and then they, they want to shove some other thing on it. Um, you know, in his letter to artists, John Paul II said, one thing that makes an artist an artist is that they have a capacity to see beyond what's immediately around them into some kind of imagined heavenly perfection or something better than we have now, and then bring it back into our own world and fabricate it out of clay or paint or wood or whatever it is. So in Ars Celebrandi, hopefully you have a priest who says, wow, I know what it means to be an icon of Christ standing at the right hand of God in the heavenly liturgy, and I'm going to do my best to use my voice, eyes, gestures, vestments, everything to make that noble to the people. So John Paul's letter to artists is kind of funny because he says, artists are always frustrated. And you know, that's the stereotypical, you know, the guy with the beret and the little mustache. Mm-hmm. Oh, nobody understands me. <laughs> and no. the very elongated cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> you are all a bunch of stupid swine. Someday you will know what I am about. You know, because mm-hmm. if an artist is truly an artist, they really have a vision beyond what they see. And most of the world doesn't. 
And so artists are always unhappy because nobody gets them, nobody understands them. So Until like a thousand years after they die, and then people are like, oh, that guy's pretty good. Yeah, but, <laughs> and then most people in the world say, oh, these artists, gosh, they're so pesky. You know, anybody who cares about liturgy probably falls into the artistic temperament because they say, oh, if the liturgy were only like this, it would, everything would be so much better, and it never is. And so they're always miserable. Artists are always miserable. And the non-artists always think that artists are fussy and difficult and, you know, pain. And it's just, just this, he says, this is how it is. So John Paul asks the artist to be patient with the non-artist, and he asks the artist to be nice, to, the non-artist to be nice to the artist, <laughs> because we always have this interplay in our imagination between the perfect, which we don't see, and trying to make the world perfect if we do have some uh, vision beyond the immediate circumstances. Yeah, but I think anybody who's ever had uh, someone teach them how to look at a painting, the Mona Lisa, uh, Michelangelo's creation, something like that, that you know, you've seen many times and maybe you don't get or certainly you don't understand, well, what's so great about this? Why is this the, was the Mona Lisa the, the most viewed image uh, on, the place, on the face of the earth right now? Why? Why is that? But then you have someone who knows how to see the image clearly, properly, with some depth and breadth and beauty uh, and explain to you what all of these things, and all then, of the images. And then you go, Wow. I never knew that. What does wow mean? Wow That's like means... how I am on every podcast episode. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, wow isn't a word that means anything except I am having a feeling of being amazed by something beyond myself. Mm-hmm. And See, so the imagination is where wow exists. Yeah, and this, this can happen in the liturgy then too, this great work of art, which is the liturgy. Sometimes it, it takes, I mean, how does any of us know anything except uh, whether you're Plato or Aristotle? Yeah, it's a performance piece though, somebody, so I'm a little Somebody told us how, how to look at it, how to sense it, how, does, how to understand and appreciate uh, these images. And when that happens, whether you're in the Louvre or uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, Sunday Mass, um, somebody teaches us and so that we can look at it and appreciate the images and say wow to them. And yeah, and so this is why there's the fussy liturgist, right, who's just, I have it my way or else. And then there's the proper liturgist who says, wow, I want the liturgy to be the proper and full revelation so that the people in the pews can experience in the level of their imagination what heaven might be like. Bring that into the intellect and let those images then uh, cause action in them to pray better, to transform the world. That's important stuff. Yeah, very well said. I mean, the, the, the liturgy is that, that point of contact between the unseen reality and the people in the pews. And you can't do justice to the liturgy by looking just at one of those two to the exclusion of the other. Because the unseen reality is for the sake of the sanctification of the faithful, which in turn is for the glorification of God, who is the reality. It has to, good pastoral practice, good liturgical practice is not simple aestheticism. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Although it does require asceticism on the, on the part of the people, good pastoral liturgical practice has both of those things in mind. It's about sanctifying the people through the power of the liturgy unto the glory of God. And if you think of your typical suburban parish, if you told the priest, well, you know what you have to do now? Tomorrow, you have to live the litur- liturgical expression fully according to the rites of the church. <laughs> Many people would probably, priests would probably say, my people would rebel. They don't want this. <laughs> yeah. And it does take a certain amount of asceticism, as Chris just said, meaning ascetic, uh, that word ascesis, where it comes from, is the same word as exercise. And so you have to kind of build up the strength to receive this kind of thing, to discipline your mind to receive it properly and, and intellectually understand it and engage in it. Yeah, so, a large change would turn people off. They would just say, no, thank you. 
Well, right. You don't just pour sugar and you know pixie stick dust on your kid's plate at dinner and say, okay, now that's good enough. You know, you, mm-hmm. you kind of have You're to say... You're not supposed to do that? Oh. Hey, do you guys know how many Catholics it takes to change a light bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? That's a good one. That's a joke from like 1950. I know. I love have it. Have you ever been to church <laughs> since the council, Jesse? It's changed every week. These millennials. <laughs> I know. Well, that's part of the stability of mm-hmm. the liturgy is that you kind of get used to the same uh, same thing. But the call to fullest living of the liturgical expression is a call to imagine your own heavenly reality and therefore to bring that into your intellect and know what it is. And the more you know it, the more fully you can do it. And the more fully you can do it, the more fully you get transformed by the life of God. And the more fully you're transformed by the life of God, the more happy you'll be with God for eternity. And that is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Boom, boom. Uh, So for what is worth, I think that's kind of our goal of this podcast is try to... help inform people to the best degree possible about you know things that have that we can imagine things that have been revealed to us you know about and through the liturgy and uh and to not be so you know uptight or fussy about it or uninformed about it but be that happy medium where we can know the most possible and then act upon that so um i think it's time for uh, another question from a listener absolutely all right. <laughs> hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, not just ritual anthropology, but really discovering the mystery of prayer and at the same time the depth of the tradition, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, It also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so uh, this week we have a question that we've gotten very frequently, actually. And it basically is, how late is too late to get to Mass and still receive the Eucharist? Or in addition to that, how late is too late and have your time there fulfill your obligation? Yeah, because this, I mean, is, yeah. This, is, this is one of the... We just say at the start, there, if there's a clear answer from the magisterium up to this question, we don't know, we don't know it. <laughs> We don't know where to find it. But one of the things is that receiving communion and fulfilling your obligation are two different things. Okay. So can you dive into that? Well, you have an obligation to attend Mass on Sunday, whether or not you receive communion. Say you're in a state of mortal sin and you haven't been to confession, you still have to go to Mass. You don't have to receive communion, even though you have an obligation to attend Mass. And maybe related to that, one can receive communion without having gone to Mass. Let's say uh, communion to the sick 
um, or even a, a celebration of the liturgy of the word in a church with the distribution of Holy Communion or Sunday celebrations in the absence of a priest we talked about before. So um, attending Mass itself isn't really the prerequisite for receiving communion. So it's more, I think, an obligation question. Although it's the ideal situation to, True. to do both, but yeah. there's always exceptional uh, circumstances. So then, what is it? So what's the answer? Dennis? 51% of mass you have to be at? <laughs> I don't know well, if that's precise. In our looking around, what were some of the answers that we saw? Uh, that well, a lot of older people were people told gave. you had to be there before the gospel was finished. That yeah, that's one I've heard, actually. Thing. Then I was looking at Father Z's blog, and he had the chalice veil to chalice veil rule, which was when the chalice veil came off um, before the Eucharistic prayer, and then when it went back on at the end. Although one of the commenters said you'd have to teach people what a chalice veil is to figure out <laughs> how to do that. Yeah, Zenit's father, McNamara, no relation, is it? No relation, no. Okay. I think he says something similar about being there for the offertory, or, or in essence, the beginning of the, the Eucharistic prayer. But I also saw a canon lawyer mention that how much of Mass you are, quote-unquote, permitted to miss depends on how important the reason is that you were late. So it's because you didn't get your act together, well, maybe the first, you know, 30 seconds is because your car exploded on the road on the way there and you ran, you know, with your last bit of blood oh my goodness. <laughs> before communion. That's very that, graphic. That's something else. <laughs> so, you know, it's or, not it's not a pure, like, scientific, rational uh, computation. Or versus uh, finishing your cigarette, uh, you know, during the Liturgy of the Word or something like that. That's and I think sometimes when people ask this question, it's that... I, I I think it's dangerous to sometimes ask like what's the minimum required for me to do to be able to get this and I think sometimes people ask that question with that in the mindset like what's what's the minimal thing that's required of me yeah, you know it, it's an interesting uh, question insofar as you know the church is oftentimes seen as this big legalistic rubrical uh, 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 rule bound institution but here we're the ones who want the answers to this question and the church is saying. I'm not going to tell you. Right. And I think a lot of it's because we had a, we talked about the AMBO once, you know, the liturgy of the word isn't an optional, uh, optional part of a, a ritual celebration. I mean, the, the word is, was, was in the beginning was with God and through that word, all things were made. Well, that's the, the, the content of the liturgy of the word. That's not something in, uh, inconsequential. And so the church wants people to be nourished from the table of the word. And so, at least now, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the church is going to give us an answer about uh, a clear answer about that. She wants us there from the beginning. Uh, if we're going to be late, then you know, I, I like what Dennis was saying. There's uh, there's you know, there's some circumstances that are just going to make you late for mass. You know, unexpected things. But when you think of the ascetic nature of liturgy and it, it it aids in your process of becoming like God, I always like to compare it to working out. You know, how much working out do you have to do at the gym before it counts as working out? Well, the less the less you do, the fewer results you're going to see. What are you looking at me for? Uh, for a lot of reasons, but the uh, you're right across is, the table from him. You know what they call the executive workout, where you go to the gym and sit in the sauna, and take a shower, and go home. I went to the gym, but you really didn't get much benefit from it. So the the less of mass you attend, the less of God's life uh, is affecting you. So. Obligation language is a bit tough, um, but I think that's a very good metaphor, Dennis. I think that that at least helps me a lot more because we've talked about grace, and you know, it's not it's not this uh, thing that just magic dust in the air, but we have to tap into it, and it's abundant. But we have to do it, and uh, if you do it in a lazy, 
in a lazy way, you're not going to see fruit and benefit from it. So that workout metaphor, I think, is really great. And hopefully that gives you guys some insight. Again, no definitive answer, but um, hopefully we our discussion has guided you more in your thoughts. This is a question that, I, that we've received several times. So uh, if you want to ask us a question, or the Liturgy Guys, rather, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.